Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Be sure to look for the Law Enforcement Today Radio Show all over social media. We're on Facebook. Look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. On MeWe.com, look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. On Twitter, follow L-E-T Radio Show P-O-1. On Instagram, follow L-E-T Radio Show Podcast. On Rumble, look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. And on Gab.com, search for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Again, our website is letradioshow.com. Hope to see you online soon. Calling us from Middletown, Ohio, we have Rodney Muterspaw on the phone. Rodney is retired chief of police of Middletown, Ohio Police Department, also author of the book, The Blue view rodney thanks for being guest on the show very much appreciated hey thanks so much for having me i really appreciate that your book the blue view uh is available on amazon and wherever books are sold correct uh yes it is so just do a search on google i did it's real complicated the blue view uh and you put in rodney if you want meter spa I would say how to spell it, but I'm afraid I'll mess it up. But the Blue View and Rodney will get you there. How long did you write the book? Man, I, I started writing this when I was in the academy, actually. And it was, it's journal entries is what it is. And uh, it was never meant to be released. It was something I wrote for fun when I was a young officer. And then um, as I got toward the end of my career as a chief, I, I wrote it for, for therapy, basically. It was a need to write. It was either write or drink, sometimes both. So I would write. But um, it just took off from there, and I had some friends in the media that, that read the uh, journal entries, and we decided to go uh, public with it. Um, right now, it's number one on Amazon for new releases in law enforcement, so that's pretty exciting. Uh, but um, it turned out pretty well. I hope people enjoy it. Again, do a search on Google for The Blue View. Put in Rodney if you want. It's run on Amazon, or just go to Amazon.com and type in The Blue View. You'll find it there. We'll talk more about the book in a moment. This spans... It's basically your diary of your 30-year law enforcement career. Yeah, it does. It's unfiltered. It's exactly what I wrote. What you're reading is things I wrote 25 years ago, 15 years ago. So it does span the whole career. Everything I've ever done is in that book. And um, I'm hoping that um, police officers get something out of it and understand more about, a little bit about what the job really is. So you worked your entire career in Middletown, Ohio Police Department. I did. I was there from uh, 1990, and I retired at the end of 2019. So I was there the whole time. My hat's off to Middletown, Ohio. They did something a lot of departments aren't doing anymore. They actually hired someone to be police chief that went through their ranks, that knew their department, that knew their community, that knew the the city, the town, whatever it might be, and knew the people working there. That's not a trend that seems to be happening a lot in the United States. To me, it's the way to go. I mean, I grew up in Middletown. I went to school here. Um, Except when I were in college, uh, this is where I've been in. You do know everybody. It makes for a community-minded department and and, uh, and chief. And I think when you go outside constantly, you're getting people that, that just want to make changes or use it as a stepping stone. And um, every time the city has tried to 
change it and go with an outside chief, the community stepped forward and said absolutely not. They voted it down on, on voting and, and election time. So that's always worked well for us here in Middletown. If you ask me, that's the best way to go. When departments hire an outsider, let's just say from the West Coast to be a police chief in a major East Coast or, or middle American city, to me, it says two things. Number one, it says, I have no confidence in my men and women who work the streets and work their way up. They they can't lead this department. Number two, it's telling me that these people from other agencies do things better than we do, which to me is an insult both ways. Oh, I agree 100%. I mean, what are you telling the people that work their way up the ranks if, if you're saying, well, none of you are good enough for going outside to somebody who knows nothing about the city or, or the agency that you're coming into? And... You know, I'm a big believer in you have to know your community. It's not about going on Google. It's about being here and being involved. And I think what helped me as the chief here and achieve success was the fact I've been in these people's homes for years, whether it's as a kid or my kids have been there. You know, uh, my kids went to school here. It makes a huge difference on your problem-solving abilities to get things done when, when you hire from within. It really does. A great example is I'm retired from the Baltimore Police Department. Baltimore is about 40 miles, 45 miles away from Washington, D.C. The two cities are polar opposites. Uh, Crime may be similar in certain areas, but a lot of what is unique about you, Washington, D.C., is totally different in Baltimore. And to say you can pluck any guy, any man or woman from Baltimore and, and make them chief of police in Washington, D.C., doesn't work well and same vice versa oh i agree with that 100 percent. i mean and, and you know i understand like you know an excuse that you use and i do get that is if there's major corruption in your department and you're at a small agency and everybody's involved i get that and sometimes you may need to do that but the status quo no i mean it's, it's good to have an internal chief who knows the, the agency and knows the city and it does flow outward to the community when you do that and we've achieved great success here in middletown with that we really have and you know, that's something we we're really proud of, and it's always been like that. I agree with you 100%. The last little rant I have about this, for departments that hire from outside for police chiefs, police commissioners, whatever terminology you want to use, the only thing I would say to these people, I don't care what department you came from. Thank you for your service. I appreciate where you've been, but do not wear the uniform of your new agency. Wear a suit because you were never competent. For example, the police chief in Baltimore is from New Orleans originally. It was never Baltimore police. He'd never police the streets of Baltimore. So to wear that uniform, and to me, it just, it speaks of hypocrisy and it's shallow. It really is. Yeah, you know, the thing is, is, you know, when you, like I patrolled the streets of Middletown for years before I went to the drug unit and then became a supervisor and and detective and all that. And uh, just to to be on those streets for all those years on patrol in in a squad car in uniform with a partner, to come up through the ranks is something special and you take it more serious because this is your home. And not only that, this is where you've been and you take you take the job, I think, more serious. You're not trying to go anywhere else. You're trying to make this community better. You're not trying to use it as a resume builder. And I think that just that's what sets it apart from an outside chief with an internal chief. Well, enough talk about being a police chief because quite <laughs> honestly, I never made it there. Uh, we'll talk some more about that later on. But you started off like everybody does in the academy and working patrol. So that was what, 30 years ago? Yeah, it was, I was in the academy in 1989 and started the job in 1990. That's right around when I retired, 1992. Uh, I got hurt and yeah. retired at the ripe old age of 33. Uh, <laughs> did you ever in your wildest dreams when you're in the academy think I would be police chief of this agency someday? 
Oh no, I never thought that at all. It was uh, my whole my whole goal was just to be a good patrol officer and work in detectives my whole career. And then, you know, what happens with a lot of people is I, there are some you know supervisors you don't like working for um, that you say, man, I'm not going to work for them my whole career. I need to to get promoted. Or there's things that you just want to see changed, and you can do that through promotion sometimes. So that's what happened. But I had no desire to ever be the police chief when I was a young officer. Ne- never in a million years, never crossed my mind. So you went to what we call patrol when you graduated from the academy? Yeah, best job I ever had. And I say to this day was patrol officer uh, on midnight shift. And um, I worked with a partner a lot of times and uh, did that for, for a while. And then I did some, uh, went to uh, special operations, which is an undercover vice unit, which was a phenomenal thing. I really enjoyed that. That was the basis of my young uh, career. When we return, we're going to talk about your narcotics career, narcotics enforcement. I spent many years working narcotics. I gravitated towards that from auto theft, and uh, we had a huge problem where I worked in Baltimore and was detailed DEA for a little over uh, almost two years, actually, uh, investigating violent drug gangs. And that certainly influenced my career and the way I saw policing. However, there's a big distinction and Hollywood butchers this all the time. I was what we call a plainclothes surveillance cop. I was not undercover. Uh, undercover people that do buys and those sort of things. Uh, and then you have the deep cover, the people who infiltrate organized crime is totally different beasts. And uh, those men and women do that, they got my utmost respect. That's a different skill set. This is Law Enforcement Today Show. We're talking with retired police chief, Rodney Muterspaw, the place to be online is our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. You'll get access to unique news articles, editorials, and so much more. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Drug-related incidents are an everyday occurrence for law enforcement officers, but they don't have the means to help these people. If you or your family member is struggling with substance abuse, drugs, or alcohol, get in front of a compassionate treatment facility. Call Fine Recovery's Confidential Hotline at 866-663-2193 to talk with someone who can get you help today and get a free insurance benefit assessment. That's 866-663-2193. 866-663-2193. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. Return conversation with Rodney Muterspa. Rodney is retired police chief from Middletown, Ohio. He's also author of the book, The Blue View. You can go to Amazon.com, just type in Blue View, or just do a Google search, type in The Blue View. If you still can't find it, type in Blue View Rodney, and it'll pop up for sure. And basically, Rodney, this is a, a diary of your 30-year career. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. It's um, unfiltered. It's pretty raw. It's exactly how I felt, things I saw and experienced over 30 years, and it's now out there to the public to see. There's so many parts of my career I look back and I, I wish I had written things down. And here's another thing. I see young cops nowadays and we've got these smartphones. We can, you got a camera, you got a video camera, you've got whatever you want. And I have very few photos of me in uniform. Uh, I wish I did. So in a way I'm jealous. But I wish I had taken time to write down a lot of these stories because there's so many great right. stories that people just won't believe that occur during just about every police career. 
You're right. You're 100% right. I mean, there's, and that's why I did it. You know, it's, um, I had a, actually had a captain in the academy mention that he wished he would have done that. He was near and retiring. And it just kind of piqued my interest. And I started doing it and it became addicting. And, uh, but everything was in there and, uh, you know, everything I, like I said, experienced, but it's, it's the best thing I've ever done. And when you go back and read it now, like in this book, it just, it makes me laugh to this day. So, you know, it's one of those things. I'm glad I did it. A big part of your career, you went from, patrol, uniform patrol, to working narcotics, to working undercover. Uh, Let's talk a bit about the narcotics days. Uh, About what year did you start doing that part of police work? Well, I had two terms in that. Well, the first one was uh, about 1994. Um, I did about a year, a little bit over a year working in the unit. And they they, they rotate you because of your face, you know, fresh faces and things like that. And, you know, it was something else because that's when I first started doing drug buys and things like that. And there was a guy that worked with me that was phenomenal at it. And he was trying to show me how to do the job. Surveillance, you know, we had, you know, undercover vehicles, the wire, things like you see on TV that people always talk about. That's where I learned it. And then um, a few years later, I was promoted and I went in there and I supervised that unit. And that was the best because I did that for about three years. And we took down some major players all over the country from Little Middletown, Ohio. And that was really rewarding. In my career, we went from primarily having marijuana, heroin, a little bit of cocaine, uh, meth, PCP. A big thing in Baltimore was PCP mixed with marijuana. They, they called it boat. And I remember when crack cocaine came in to, to Baltimore, and it's like almost overnight, everything changed. Oh, man. When crack took over, it was a, it was unbelievable. We went from having... 10 guys standing on the street corners to about 100. Um, and then every, it seems like every car you'd stop, every five cars you'd stop, one you'd get dope out of, you'd get crack out of, and it was out of control. Um, the difference between that and the heroin game, what we saw for years you know, recently, was nobody was really dying in the crack game as far as overdose. And there were shootings, but the, in the heroin, it was a whole different ballgame because people were dying and overdosing. But the crack game, it seems like everybody got in on that. Everybody. It was just an easy way to make money. And it's such fast turnaround. There was so much money, and it's so much, with all that money, there is so much violence and protecting yourself being ripped off from other dealers or junkies, whatever it might be. Uh, it, it's like our violence level changed tremendously uh, as far as shootings on a daily basis. Was that similar to you guys? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was nothing like Baltimore. I mean, we're nothing like Baltimore. You know, we're between Cincinnati and Dayton and, a, and about 50,000 population, but we got everything from Cincinnati and Dayton. And, uh, the shootings and, and the guns you recovered was just constant. It was an ongoing thing, and it seemed like it would never end. Every day was was new, and um, was something like that. So, yeah, we we felt the same thing here in Middletown, Ohio, that you did. One of the things I look back on, and I, I take exception, Rodney, to the terminology a lot of people use with the the opiate epidemic, or they use the heroin epidemic. It's, and I, I'll say to them, we were dealing with this back in the nineteen eighties. What seems to have changed to me, and just my humble opinion for what it's worth, doesn't mean I'm right, is as long as it's going on in inner city, no one seemed to care. When it spread its wings and went to suburbs, all of a sudden, now it's an epidemic. We had people dropping like flies back then. And by the way, when someone, when you had a, a host of overdose deaths in an area, all the all the addicts went there to buy. Yeah. And, th- and that's true. That's the way it was. I mean, it seems like nobody cared. You hit the nail on the head again. I mean, it's like nobody cared. And then, you know, it started affecting people in different neighbors and stuff, and then all of a sudden people started caring. 
Um, but you're you're right. I mean, I can't say it any better than what you just did. <laughs> That's perfect. It's sad, yeah. say, it's sad to say that, but the loss on a family, and I know you went through this because I went through it. Yeah. The loss on a family when you have a, a young person who's addicted, let's just say heroin, when they're addicted yeah. to heroin and they die, and they die at 24 or 25, the loss of a family is no less than if they were killed in a robbery or killed in a car accident. The person's gone. Exactly. Oh, I agree. I agree 100%. And, you know, and, and a lot of people don't look at it like that, unfortunately, but, you know, we do look at that like that. So, yeah, it's, you're right. I mean, the death is the death regardless. Did you ever get so frustrated? I, I remember almost like yelling out at an overdose death. It's like, when is this insanity going to stop? When are people going to care? Yeah, we, we would, you'd go to these calls or you'd go to these houses and, and you know, or you'd be there at the corner and you would just shake your head. And and people people would, and when somebody would overdose in somebody's house, they would dump them in the alley out back or they would dump them in a, you know, somebody else's yard so they wouldn't get in trouble. It was the worst thing you've ever seen. And it was like, whatever happened to this, you know, and, and how did we even get to this place? So yeah, the frustration is unreal. I hate to say it this way. You brought up a, a bad memory, actually, uh, of a homicide scene where uh, a, a young woman who was a prostitute uh, was viciously murdered and thrown down the stairs of a terrace garden apartment, and I wound up catching the killer and, and found wow. the crime scene quite by accident. But my thought was, Rodney, it's like they threw this person away like they're, they're trash, uh, like they're garbage. And overdose deaths, they're doing the same thing. They're discarding the people like they're garbage. Yeah, and and they do, and, and that's we we saw that so much um, that it just got so out of control and so you know it was so overbearing to even be a part of you know, and it was so frustrating, um, and it just seems like it got worse and worse until one day I think everybody died off, and not just that I think you saw different programs finally jump up and take place, but for a while it was just out of control. By the way, if you have a loved one in your family who has a drug or alcohol problem. I don't care what terminology we use, substance abuse, addiction, whatever it might be, alcoholism. I always tell people, as long as they're breathing in and out, there's still hope. There's hope that they can get better, that they can recover, and lots and lots of people do. It's when they die that all hope is gone. And I've met so many people in law enforcement and after retiring that said when a loved one, their son, their daughter was arrested and in jail, they, they, they were able to breathe a sigh of relief because they knew that they were gonna be clean for a while and they'd be taken care of. Yeah, and and that's exactly what happens with it is, but eventually it catches up to everybody when you do that, and and you know it kills it because you see mom and dads and family members just they're so distraught over it because they do everything they can as a parent or family member and nothing works, and you know you know how it is it's 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 the saddest thing you'll ever see and the thing what what these overdoses and heroin addiction did to people um, it was hitting rich neighborhoods for the first time usually never had that. And that's when I think when, when politicians started taking it serious because it was affecting them. Yeah, and, and that's, with money that's comes typical. power and politics and politicians get attention. If you haven't done so already, please download our app. It's 100% free. We got versions for your Android and iPhone devices, 100% free. You can download them today at our website, which is letradioshow.com. That's letradioshow.com. Dot com. Be sure to get yours today. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. We're going to take a short break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
Attention real estate investors, do you need cash immediately? If you own one or multiple rental properties, you can use your equity to get cash out fast. The best part is we don't need tax returns or even a good credit score. At America's Loan Source, we are not a bank and we don't have bank rules. We make the decisions to loan you money and there's no limit how much we can give you. Some clients have gotten as much as $500,000 or more within days. Use the money any way you want. If you own one rental property or a hundred and COVID has left you in a cash crunch, we can help you turn your equity into fast cash. Call now for details and close in as little as 10 days and get the cash you need. 800-296-1242. That's 800-296-1242. Back to our conversation with Rodney Muterspa. Rodney is retired police chief from Middletown, Ohio. Spent his 30-year law enforcement career in Middletown, Ohio. He also author of the book, The Blue View. Do a search on Amazon for The Blue View or Google, and it'll show up. Rodney, again, thanks for your service. And a big part of your career we're talking about earlier is you went from uniform patrol to working narcotics and narcotics we talked about the different phases of it uh that i did that you did and part of it was undercover and i'll be honest with you undercover as far as drug buys go i was horrible at it i was not very good and people saw through me very quickly but the surveillance part man you once i got eyes on you, you you weren't getting away and that's the hardest part. I always try to tell people the surveillance is the hardest part of uh, the, the, um, the undercover work and because you have to constantly stay attentive to what's going on around you and who's coming, who's going, license plates, car descriptions. The buying part is so quick. You know, you, we had guys that were really good at that, and they would go into a buy within five minutes. They're in and out. But surveillance, you sit there for up to eight hours, sometimes longer, and you can't miss a thing. So, yeah, I see your point on that, but the, the value is in those who can sit and do that for hours and hours and keep notes it really is yeah don't even get me started on bathroom breaks on surveillance because once you were on an assignment there was no i remember telling my wife at the time i was leaving house like eight o'clock in the morning i'll be back around 4 30 should be a short day i was doing surveillance and and they started moving things started going and i didn't get back for like 18 19 hours and that's just the way it was and that was before we had cell phones and everything else so you couldn't call right. them you're like if i don't show up that's why and they she she understood yeah, and that's that's so funny because that's so true how that works. It really does. One story, real quick. I had to go do an under, uh, a surveillance on a target, um, and it was near the old Memorial Stadium in Baltimore, where the Colts and the Orioles used to play. And as I'm oh, driving yeah. down the street in an undercover car, an old Pontiac Firebird Formula guy typically like the, the movies a guy whips open a guitar case and pulls out a sawed-off shotgun and points at someone else. And here I am looking like a street guy in a Pontiac Firebird, armed with a 38 revolver, and I disarmed him. I was detailed DA at the time, and they were flabbergasted, A, that this happened, and B, that I was able to take him down without shots being fired. And by the way, police did that every day. Every day. Absolutely. Every day they do that without without anybody dying or getting shot, and I think that's what's frustrating because you don't see that on the media. You just see the bad stuff. So, yeah, absolutely. And that's part of the job. The violence is part of the job vast majority yeah. of time it didn't end badly 
and they didn't end in the use of force beyond that. Uh, it was very rare that people actually got shot by police, but man, when it happens, the news media seems to blow it up like it happens every day to everybody. Yeah, you're right, and, and it doesn't. We all know. We know that. We know better. <laughs> I want to go back to your career. Uh, so take us back to, you started off when you worked narcotics, you're doing surveillance, and eventually they graduated throwing you into undercover work, correct? Yeah, I did, I did some buys and some things like that, mostly when I was doing marijuana buys when I did it. We had a guy that was a lot better at it than me, and he just fit the part better, and he did a lot of the harder stuff, so I did a lot of the surveillance in and the uh, the Kale units, the recording units. Um, and then when I got promoted, I took over that unit. And that was a blast because we um, expanded the unit and we ended up taking down one of the largest gangs in, in America um, through Middletown, which was crazy. It was called the Rimble Gang. And a guy who served, who got life in prison as a part of these federal indictments, um, he led the gang. And they had people killed. He tried to testify against them. And I think we put 19 people in federal prison on this case. Um, but they set up a Middletown because we were between Cincinnati and Dayton, and it was easy pickings for them. So it ended up being something that was awesome. And, and, you know, we sent people out to Compton, California, to take them down with LAPD, you know, on our search warrants that we did from Ohio. So those are the rewarding things that you get out of undercover work that are phenomenal. A lot of people seem to think, and I was guilty of this when I was a young police officer, that the guys, I say the guys, the men and women in the smaller departments in the more rural areas had it easy. They didn't. A, there's a lot less of them, so they have to do every aspect of law enforcement. And what I found out was a lot of our big-time, really violent drug organizations, they moved their stash houses and the places where they lived out in the counties and rural areas. So you're a great example. Being Between Dayton and Cincinnati, a small town, Middletown, Ohio, is not yeah. big where this is going on. No, you're right. And, and we're a medium-sized town, but they would come here thinking it would be easy you know, to take over because we were smaller. And they thought, well, we'll stay out of Cincinnati Dayton, so we'll come here. And what they don't realize is, you know, we work regional. So we work with, you know, sheriff's departments, you know, the state. We work with counties. And so we all coordinated. And, and But Middletown was the one who did this. And we ended up taking the case federal with the FBI. And so we was able to do that. And same with the cartels. You know, we dealt a lot with different cartels and um, over the course of my career. Straight into Mexico, San Diego, you know, we'd have 40 or so indictments, and um, it was exciting working with the feds on that, simply for the fact that they, um, we were able to take out people who were bringing dope into town that didn't live here. So that was really rewarding in the undercover capacity. Being from a law enforcement background and being guests or hosting this show, I've had many people on that don't view even towns like Nashville, Tennessee, cities that are, that are large cities as having a big drug or gang problem. But the cartels have hubs, distribution hubs, and they use the highways primarily to transport their stuff. So I, in a way, I'm part of me wants to be surprised this happens in Middletown, Ohio, but the other part of me realizes it happens everywhere. Oh, yeah, it does. It happens. Even small towns, big, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's a game to these people, and they're going to try to do whatever they can to get their product sold, and they're going to try to find somewhere easy to do it, and they'll take it to small towns if they need to. And, and that's the thing the small towns, you, I think you just said it, they don't have the resources usually to handle things like that. So it's perfect for drug dealers to go into these small towns and take over because small towns with six, eight police officers, they don't, they can't do that. And in the middle town, we had almost 80 police officers when I was the chief. Um, you know, so you got small towns around us who have five, six, seven officers. So those are perfect spots to set up. In your opinion, from your experience, what's one thing about policing, in particular, working drug enforcement, undercover work that Americans just don't get or don't hear the truth about? 
the number one thing I would say that, that they don't understand is that we're not robots. We are human beings, and we we make mistakes. We suffer through things. We, you know, as a police officer, you take this stuff home with you every night mentally, and then people expect us to come up the next day and just, you know, they'll complain me for being rude or I don't like the way he looked at me. But we might have just came from a, you know, a, a, a dead baby call. We might have just came from a, you know, a sexual assault victim, and we don't feel like smiling. And people expect us to be robots on every call, and it's just not humanly possible. And no amount of training can change that about a man or a woman. You just can't do it. You no, know, you, mentally. you also can't train for every possible scenario. Uh, we we do the best we can with. And people don't get is a lot of what you please do nowadays is result of people being killed or severely injured in the line of duty elsewhere that we change our approach. Uh, a, a big example of this, Rodney, is I remember being a young patrolman in Baltimore and we had uh, a, a detective, a narcotics detective named Marcellus Ward, who was detailed at DEA and he was doing a buy undercover on the second floor of a row house and he was wired up and there's team listing there's a whole backup team around us and somehow or another they got the idea of his police and they executed him right there on the wire where everybody could hear uh, and by the time we got to him he was already dead that changed and I'll, I'll as long as i'm alive i don't think i'll ever forget the impact that had on our entire department in our city Oh, I'm sure it did. And you're exactly right. That will change everything, and it changes attitudes and, you know, preconceived notions and things like that. And it's unfortunate things like, like that happens, you know, to get people to change. But that's the way it is in this world, unfortunately. And the amount of bravery it took for, for people like uh, Marty, we called him Marty, Marty Ward and other police across the United States doing what they do on a daily basis. When I say police, I mean our sheriff's deputies, other federal branches of law enforcement as well the bravery it takes to go in and put yourself in harm's way to work undercover right. to know that you're going into the lion's den so to speak where really bad things can happen uh that they deserve our respect we're talking with rodney mutispaw rodney is a career law enforcement officer retired police chief from middletown ohio and also author of the book the blue view you can listen to the show as a podcast for free that's right 100 free just go to letradioshow.com click the be heard tab you'll find us there or do a google search for a law enforcement today podcast be sure to subscribe today remember it's free don't go anywhere we'll be right back call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low we can't publish them anywhere low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-451-8603. 800-451-8603. That's 800-451-8603. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. Back to our conversation with Rodney Muterspaugh on the Law Enforcement Today show. Rodney is a retired police chief from Middletown, Ohio, 30 years from Patrolman Oil, the police chief, is also author of the book, The Blue View. Do a search on Google for The Blue View, and it should pop up, or just go to Amazon.com, and you'll find it there as well. Rodney, 
I retired to the rank of sergeant, and that was one of the best jobs I had in policing, uh, patrol sergeant. You, you've got to balance making sure your, your men and women are okay, making sure they have what they need to do the job, trying to watch out for their mental and physical health, and make sure they do the job the right way so the citizens get what they deserve, which is the best best service possible. So it's, it's a balancing act. But I never made it past that. I, I see a lot of police chiefs nowadays that they seem to be first in line to throw their men and women under the bus, unjustly so. And I often say to myself, they must have forgot where they came from. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, you know, I couldn't have said that better myself. It's, that's a problem in this profession, um, I guess in any profession. But in this case, you know, these people depend on you and they look up to you for, for guidance. They look up for you to, to mentor them. And, you know, one thing I was always proud of is always put the people first and the officers first. And it about cost me my job several times with the city, the city of Middletown, arguing with the city manager or council over the, over the officers. But you have to put them first. And when you don't do that, when you lose them, you lose everything. You truly do. They should be your first priority and with the community and then the, the politics secondary. I'm sure during your career, you had to fire people. You had to maybe even take action. I had to do it as well. It's not part of police work I liked. But by and large, I would say 99% of the law enforcement people I worked with were the best. They may not have been superstars every moment of every day, but generally all around, they were phenomenal people doing the best they could with the worst equipment and the worst working situations, worst circumstances, and the highest risk. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, no, no, good cops don't want bad cops around. They just don't. And, you know, the people I had to get rid of or fire didn't need to be police officers. They just didn't. But that's like 1% or 2%, if, if even that. Um, the, and, and the good there's 97 98% of these officers that they bust their tail for, for the city they work for and their family men and their people, and they, they, they want to do what's great and want to do what's right, and they just want to help people. And that gets swept under the rug sometimes by politics or administrators, and you know, it just breaks your heart as a chief because you can only do so much. You know, we can't give bonuses for good work. You know, I can't do this or do that. Pat on the back and a, and a, and a thank you is pretty much all you can do in our line of work. But you gotta look out for your people, number one. Um, get rid of the bad ones, but treat the good ones right. You retired right before this whole defund the police movement went crazy in the United States and seeing a lot of that going on look politicians have always been the bane of law enforcement in my opinion it doesn't matter what brand what side they're on in the aisle uh, they were when I say corrupt I don't mean taking money I mean political power corruption when you see all this going on now do you ever like scream at the television that you want to talk to this police chief or this police commissioner and say hey you need to do this I do, and you know, and I know I wasn't, you know, as a police chief, you're never 100% right. I know that. I made mistakes, and you know, but I watch these politicians, and they get on there, and they'll say things to just stir it up, stir it up, stir it up, and they don't even consider for one minute the damage they're doing to the community by causing this division between the police and the community, and instead of focusing on the 98% of the good officers, they'll focus on the 2% of the bad officers, and you know, the politicians make these laws, but then they... You know, then they throw the police under the bus when the police enforce those laws. <laughs> That's the thing that drives us crazy as, as police um, executives. And so, no, the politicians can they can really make it hard for you. They really do because they don't. There's no consequence for their actions, none at all. Well, a lot of people don't realize too, Rodney. You and I both know this: is that 
The police departments are part of the executive branch of government. They usually fall under the purview of the mayor. The mayor or the city manager, uh, city council, uh, and in a state level, it's a governor, and a federal level, it's a president. Let's use Minneapolis as an example. This is what was the firing pin, so to speak, for a lot of what happened. And it was Mayor Jacob Fry's police department that was in question. It was his command staff that he appointed or kept in office that was in question. And everybody let him off the hook and then turn around and try to blame police in Los Angeles for what was happening in Minneapolis. I never understood that. No, and, and but see, that's the problem. You know, one, if something bad happens in Minneapolis or Los Angeles, it affects us here in, in Ohio. This is the one profession where something bad can happen 2,000 miles away and it affects you directly here. Yeah. Look at the Rodney King thing. The Rodney King thing comes to mind. I was a new officer then. And we took a beating here in Middletown because of that. And we're literally, you know, 2,500 miles away from Los Angeles. And so people hated us here because of something happened there. So I don't think politicians and, and those making those decisions understand how that affects us as cops. And, um, and it makes it hard on you. It really does. Um, so you're right about that. It's just it's crazy how that happens. It well, really is. Also history. Uh, we... We went through the same thing you talked about. If somebody did something horrible in Philadelphia, at least in Baltimore, got chewed out for it. Same with D.C. But we were dealing with, I call it the ghost of Selma, Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama, the civil rights movement, and the horrible things that happened down there. Police departments in other parts of the United States, 30 years later, 40 years later, are still being painted with that same brush. Yeah. No, you really, and, and that, it'll never go away, it seems like. Cause, and even when it does start to go away, something minimal or something bad might happen. And then it just stirs right back up. So that's, that's an issue with it, too. And you, all you really want to do is try to just do the best you can and hope that doesn't come to your city. That's all you can hope for. Earlier in the conversation, you said that the one thing that people don't realize in America is that police are human. They do the best they can. And sometimes they're not perfect and sometimes they make mistakes and uh, most of the time it's making mistakes trying to do their job is there part of policing that that if you had a chance to tell america that the media is portraying totally wrong whether it be hollywood or social media or news what would that be um you know i think just the fact that i think i said it earlier that you know what how they portray it is that that most police are bad or they have bad intentions I think how they portray it a lot of times is that these people, all we do is shoot people, beat up people, you know, racially profile, and then go home and do it again the next day. And that's just so incorrect. I mean, it's it's not like that. And you're going to have those instances no matter what agency you're in, and, and you've got to hope to weed those out. But these are people. These are human beings, and these are people that took this job for a reason and that put up with this every day for a reason just to try to make their city or their community better. And I just wish they would kind of focus on that i know it's not interesting i know it's not as exciting as watching a cop on tv shoot somebody but that's just not how it is i mean the average police officer never fires his weapon in his career i mean that's a fact and i think they 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 dismiss that in some of the things that they do you're so right about that and another thing that that people don't seem to get is there's an old saying no one wants to see sausage being made everybody loves the way it tastes but no one wants to see it and when it comes to police use of force it's the the suspect who determines what's going to happen. They have multiple chances to make different decisions that will change the outcome, but it's the police that are blamed, and quite often, it's not the cop's fault. They did the best they could, 
and they didn't have any recourse. That's their job. You can't just like run away. Uh, so we could talk about that at length, but before we do get lost in that conversation, I want to make sure we tell people about your book, where they can get more information, what it's about. Yeah, the book, like I said, it's it's unfiltered and it's you know it's it's selling really a lot. We just released it this week, and it's on Amazon. If you go to the Blue View, also the the website is thebluevievebook.com. I mean, I can, you can order from there also. Um, it's the number one new release in, in that category, which we're, we're really excited about. We couldn't believe it. The audio book will be out probably this week, and that will be available on iTunes and um, also Amazon. But it's a book that is just, if you want to know what it's really like behind the scenes, and the good thing about it, you know, it was reviewed by J.D. Vance, who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, and he, he loved it. He wrote a review on it. Clarence Page of the Chicago Tribune, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner. And uh, he wrote a review on it, and he loved it. So it's getting really good reviews, which we're really excited about. Um, just if you get a chance, check it out, see if you like it. But if you want to be a cop and you're, and you're young, read it, and it'll tell you everything, what it's really like, what you don't see on TV or what you don't see in the newspapers. Rodney, thanks so much for your service. Thanks so much for being a guest on Law Enforcement Today's show. And, and thanks for taking all the time and effort to write that book. It's all very much appreciated. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, Jay. Hey, folks, when you have a chance, check out our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. When you get there, click like and follow. That's click, like, and follow Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today Show. We've got another great guest heading your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.